If you have your copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of John, John chapter 2, as we reach the end of chapter 2 and are quickly approaching chapter 3. We've been in a, a series now for some time as we're walking through this gospel letter. If you were with us last week, you know um, the previous interaction Jesus had was the cleansing of the temple. He came in and the worship going on was not in accord with how God's word calls us to worship him. There were practices that were taking away from or were distracting from the true worship of God. And so Jesus in righteous anger comes in and cleans the place out. And as a consequence or a response to that, some of the Jewish leaders look to him, what are you doing and who gave you the right to do it? To which Jesus tells them, I have every right I need. If you try to destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it again. Of course, they did not understand, but in time they would come to know he meant his own body. He meant himself, his death and his resurrection. We close out that section of scripture by hearing the words that in time the disciples would remember this and they would believe. It does not surprise us though that there were some who were intrigued by this action of Jesus. That they saw him, they saw what he did, they saw what he said he was going to do and they said, huh, I want to follow this guy. Because there's some interesting things going on here, and if I stick around him, I'm going to get to see something. There's a show, if you will, and I want to be a part of it. And so really, today, our passage, a short passage, but an important one, talks about following Jesus. But we have to be very careful that we're following Jesus for the right reasons, and that John will make plain for us. With that being said, would you please follow along with me as we hear the scriptures made plain. Love to read for us this morning, John chapter two, starting in verse 23 and reading through the end of the chapter. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please once again bow with me as we ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we have read your word this day, and now we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would give us sight and understanding Lord, may we all experience true belief. May we all trust in Jesus Christ for the right reasons. May we hope in him and rest in him because he is our creator, our savior, and our friend, not because of what we can get out of it. Lord, I thank you for this time to study your word. We dedicate it to you now in Christ's name. Amen. We find ourselves at this moment in between two significant passages of Scripture. As I just mentioned, we're on uh, the tail end of the, the purification of the temple. 
we're on the forefront of quite possibly the most famous passage, well-known passage, well-known chapter of all of Scripture, John chapter 3. But Lord willing, you're going to have to wait at least one more week to get there. And so we find ourselves in between these two moments, these two scenes, these major significant passages. And then we get these three short, abbreviated, almost um, uh, commentary verses. But I want to encourage us this morning not to overlook these, not to get so excited about what's to come that we fail to appreciate what's being told to us this day. Because really what's at stake here, what John is emphasizing is this idea of belief. What does it mean to believe? Another way we could describe that is faith. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? All of us have faith in a variety of things. You have faith right now, whether you're realizing it, appreciating it or not. You're having faith that your pew won't fall down. Now, now some of you are going to, that faith is going to waver. Now that I've said it, you're going to ponder that. And I apologize if I've lost you for the service. Some of you have faith that we're going to have a potluck after the service this morning and it's going to be worth coming to. That's worth putting your faith in. But you don't know what people brought. Y'all are having faith this morning in all sorts of things, all different things going on in your lives that you don't even uh, really think about in the day-to-day that you're having faith in. My lungs will still work, my heart will still beat, my eyes will still focus through this morning. These are day-to-day areas or or items in which we have faith in. But faith in our surroundings and our environment and and, in situations, that's one thing. But faith in Jesus Christ is something entirely different. We have faith that he is real. We believe in him. We have faith that he did these things, that he really did do what he said he's going to do. But it goes even deeper than that. We have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Savior of sinners, and that by his sacrifice on the cross, we have life. That's a level of faith that you don't get by hoping your chair doesn't fall down. Because that is fickle, that, that is fleeting, that is immaterial. But the faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation has to do with eternity. It has to do with your very soul. It, it, it goes beyond just mere trust. It, it really is far, far deeper. And that's the point of our passage this morning. It's a concept in which John gives us in two sections. We'll look at verse 23 and we'll see that some people believe because they can see. Some will believe what they see. And then secondly, we'll we'll compare that with true belief or true faith. Or true belief comes by faith, excuse me. True belief comes by faith. And that faith specifically is faith in Christ. So let's begin with people will believe what they see. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he did a lot of things. He performed a lot of miracles. He gave a lot of great lessons. 
John alludes to that here uh, in that he did many miracles while he was in Jerusalem. Now, we don't have them recorded. At this point in, in John's gospel, we've read about the water to wine at Cana, but we don't know of some of the other miracles. It's not for us to know. But Jesus has gathered himself a group of people that have seen these things, that are interested. I mean, let's think about it. Let's think of some of the things Jesus does in his ministry. He turns water to wine. He makes food appear when there is little to no food. He multiplies food. He heals the lame, the sick. He cures leprosy. He raises the dead. On and on we could go. He casts out demons. If you believed nothing in him, wouldn't those things alone make you go, I'd like to follow this guy. What's he going to do in the next town? You know, here he turned water into wine. What's he going to do next? How's he going to top that? He, it had become almost a form of, of entertainment or a, at least a curiosity. I wonder what Jesus is up to. Let's, let's keep an eye on this guy. If you remember, John tells us very clearly um, the heart of his passage, the reason he writes this letter, John's gospel, is this. We find it in John 20, 31. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The purpose of the signs are not to entertain, they're not to astonish, they're not to distract. They are to show you Jesus is who he says he is. And further than that, his goal is so that you believe. Believe in him and have life, a transformation. And so I want to paint a picture for you this morning. I want to paint a picture of two camps. Think of them as, 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 as opposing camps or opposing armies, if you will. You've got one camp, let's call them true believers, faithful believers, people who believe and they are 100% com committed, convinced, convicted. You talk to them and all they want to talk about is that we believe in this. We believe this message. We believe what is being said, what is being told. We get it. We follow him because we know him and because we love him. And then look at the other side of the field. Look at the other army or the other group, if you will, the other camp. These are people who are 100% opposed or against Jesus and his teaching. That, in that group, we find things like this. There's no way he is God. There is no way that the miracles really happened. There is no way his teaching is true. There is no way that he is the Messiah. We do not believe, we will not believe, and you cannot convince us to believe. Those that are, that are strongly opposed, two camps. And a lot of times in life, we think in those binary terms. You're either in or you're out. It's black and white. We have that phrase, black and white. It's, it's either this or it's this. It is clear distinction. 
There's no room for error or for confusion. And when we think about faith, when we think about belief, when we think about trusting in God, we might think in those ways. Now, for those that are in the out camp or in the not belief camp, maybe they're not as vocal about it. Maybe they're not your, your dynamic atheist who are saying, um, there's no way he's real, I can't believe in him, there's no way this is right. But maybe they live a life of indifference. Maybe they live a life that says, I don't have time, focus, desire, attention to pay any matter to God. But what I want to propose this morning from the text, and we'll get to it even more as we get to the next two verses, there's actually a third camp. We can't work in the binary here, either you're in or you're out. And in fact, we see it all throughout the Gospels that there really is a third camp. And going back to that, that phrase or that saying, um, it's either black or it's white, well, um, somewhere in the middle, if you created a Venn diagram, there is gray. And what does this camp look like? Well, this is the camp that tries to take part in both sides. This is the camp that wants the benefits of both groups. So they look like faithful people. They look religious. They know the language. They could recite the Apostles' Creed if they were here this morning. They could take part in the service. They could nod along. Um, looking at them, you would not be able to distinguish or differentiate them from anybody else in attendance. They would even say that Jesus, he's a good fellow. Boy, some of the things he said, they were clever. They were good. We should listen to his moral teachings. That's, that's a, you ever hear that, know that that's... That's the liberal mantra of liberal theology. Um, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Um, just be careful. Anything that comes next, it, it, it sways into liberalism very, very quickly. Because usually it says this, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he was not God. And so they try to get the benefit of the belief camp, but then they also try to get the benefit of the unbelief camp or the, the skeptic camp. They don't fully want to commit. They don't really want to, to put themselves all in. They want to leave room in case the, the religious or the, the camp of believers proves to be wrong so they can jump back to the other side and celebrate with them. Like, ha look, we're part of the victors. We did it. We were with you all along. And I, I think that in our modern world, and I've had to rem remember this coming back to the South and the Bible Belt. Sadly, this is particularly true. There's a lot of people in this camp. There's a lot of people in our culture today that try to have their feet in both worlds. Whether they announce it or not, whether they um, uh, tell us or not, by their actions, by their activities, by their faith, we see they don't really trust in Jesus. They're just interested in Jesus. He's interesting. I like what he's doing. I'd like to hear more. Can't be God, but I'd like to at least find out what's gonna happen next. Well, this is the group that Jesus is interacting with here in Jerusalem. Jesus is telling us that this camp exists and this camp is real. And we'll, we'll get to what he does about it in a moment. But I want to just give us a warning this morning. Um, Paul says, or, or excuse me, Peter says in 2 Peter that the church 
must be very careful of false teachers and prophets. For in his time they rose from within the church to spread false teaching with the goal of bringing in heresy. You see, the, the trick with the camp that's in the middle, the camp that's in the gray, they have access to both parties. And in Peter's time, there were those who secretly opposed the church, but they got in. They learned the hymns. They attended Sunday school. They made their weekly offerings. They participated and let their children participate in the singing. And we all looked around and said, look at all these great believers. And then they got into places of teaching. And then when they got into places of teaching, they started teaching things that didn't quite line up. It was maybe a little off at first, but as time went on, they, they strayed further and further from the word of God. That's how schism happens. That's how, how division happens in the church. And Peter is telling us, be careful, Christians. Be very careful who you put in leadership, who you place over you, who you allow to teach. For there will be some who come with the desire to destroy no, I'm not saying everyone that Jesus is talking about here in Jerusalem wanted to destroy. Um, these could be people that were more in that agnostic mindset of a, hmm, we'll find out when we find out. Um, I don't, I don't want to necessarily assign malicious intent yet. <laughs> Wait till we get to the Passion Week, then we can assign malicious intent. It becomes very clear then. But what I do want to encourage us is we need to watch our own hearts, I'm not interested in you going on a crusade to try to root out all the false teachers here from the church. I don't want you to do that, please. I am interested in you going home and you going this week and asking, what do I believe when I say I believe in Jesus? Do you believe he is God? That he sacrificed himself on the cross to save you from your sins? As you're examining your heart, do you say, hmm, he's an okay teacher. His stuff is good. He did some neat things. I think I'm going to place a safety bet. I'm going to bet on Jesus just in case. Just in case this whole thing works out. Are you truly trusting in him? Or are you trying to be in both camps? Are you just trusting what you can see, what you can gain, what there is to benefit? Or are you resting in who he is and what he has done? Because true belief, true belief comes through faith and faith in him. And Jesus, being a wise teacher, being far wiser than any of us, knows this. And he knows it because he knows the heart of man. Verse 24 tells us, or 23 and 24, when he was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. So their belief was in what he was doing, what he was performing. But, verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. As simply as I can put it this morning, Jesus knew the faith or lack of faith from these people, so he did not reveal himself to them as the Savior of the world, the Savior of sinners, because they did not believe. Jesus cannot be fooled by flattery or dishonest emotions. We, on the other hand, we are human. We have to a lot of times take things as face value. We listen when people tell us something and we have to believe unless we have good reason not to. 
That's what makes these false teachers so dangerous. On the outside, they look great. They look like they've got it together. They present well. But the false teacher um, method doesn't work when Jesus is around. Because what did Jesus do? He said, I saw their hearts. I saw their intentions. They don't believe in me. They don't trust in me. They don't believe in my word, my message. They don't see me as the savior. They don't see me as the son of God. And therefore, I did not reveal myself to them. There's two important lessons we must understand in light of this verse. The first is this. The heart of man is wicked. That uh, fairy tale mantra, just follow your heart, uh, that'll run you off a cliff. Please don't live your life by that mantra. Follow your heart. Your heart is wicked. Jeremiah says it. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If he doesn't answer it for you, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous. No, not one. Not one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No matter how good we look on the outside, we have dying hearts. I'd even say we have dead hearts. We're all in need of a heart transplant. And the only place we can receive a new heart and new life is through Jesus Christ. It's a lot like going to get a a piece of, of fruit. This is always a fun analogy because I really don't eat fruit, but most of you probably do. And you go and you get an apple, and you're like, oh, I can't wait for this apple. This is so amazing, so tasty. I'm so excited about it. And you cut it open because that's far more reasonable than just biting into an apple, that barbaric practice. Sorry, um, I don't like them. And you go and you cut it open before you bite into it to prove my illustration. And then you open it up, and it is just mushy. Is there anything that grosses you out more than a mushy apple? Y'all know that's consistency. You know what I'm talking about. That's why I don't eat them. It's not quite jelly, but it's close. There's some grit in it. And you picked this apple because you saw it and you said, boy, this looks good. And you found out down to the core, no, it's worthless. It is, can't be used for its intended purpose. That's how we all are as humans We are born sinful. We're born into a sinful world. We willfully rebel against God. And the only way we can go from the camp of no belief and even from the camp of some belief to the camp of belief is by a new heart, which can only come through Jesus. And so the first lesson we must take away from this is that we are wicked the second lesson we need to take away from this is not to, and to use another analogy, not to judge a book by its cover. One of the most spiritually rich moments I have ever had in my life and in my years of ministry came in a, um, a food distribution uh, in Atlanta. Now, we were doing a mission trip that week with youth, and we went to, to serve uh, the uh, homeless population in Atlanta, which there is no lack of homeless in Atlanta. And we would, each morning, we would prepare so many meals and uh, toothbrushes and soaps and things like that, and then we would go hand out these bags to these homeless people and pray for them. 
And I remember we, our team came up to this one homeless gentleman and we went to give him his bag and his food and, and you get this sense of, um, look at how much good I'm doing. Look at me taking care of the needs of this homeless person. They can't do it on their own or they won't do it on their own. Look how well I am being at being a good, faithful believer. And that man threw a curveball that I'll, I'll, I'll never forget and almost 20 years later, I still remember very vividly. We came to him and we handed him his, his resources, which he took happily, and we said, we're gonna pray for you. And he said, that's fine, but let me pray for you as well. Wait a minute, that, that's not in the script. Um, what do you mean you pray for us? We're supposed to pray for you. You're the homeless man. Like, you're the one that needs help. And, and intrigued, we asked him, he's like, what are you talking about? Why? He said, look, I'm a fellow believer. I trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, and I hope to see him one day, and he's going to make me new and take me home. And then he said this. He said, I have nothing. I live under a bridge. I live at the mercy of those who come and provide for me. I have absolutely nothing but Jesus. He said, you showed up in a new van, all of you with cell phones in your pockets, backpacks on your back. You're gonna go back to three meals this day and probably a mall, because a lot of people came and did these ministries. He got it. He said, who's in more danger, you or me? We need to be very careful when we're evaluating a situation or evaluating a person. We don't go by what we see. That we don't let pride or prejudices or um, our understanding of a situation cloud the truth. For we may find someone that has a better sense, a better grasp of the gospel than we do in the most unlikely places, like a bridge in Atlanta off of Peach Street. Our passage ends with these words. Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Look, Jesus is unique. We can't be Jesus in this scenario. Jesus created man. He created these people. He made them. He knows them. He sees through to their heart. He knows their intentions, their mindsets, their attitudes. Jesus himself is the prototype. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus understands us better than we understand us, for he is the model. So we have these three camps before us this day. Belief, faith, unbelief, and then some kind of mushy middle ground. On judgment day, where everyone will bow the knee and will give an account of their life and what they did with the time given to them, the only people that will hear, well done, my good and faithful servants, you have fought the good fight, you have finished the race, enter into my kingdom, are those that trusted in Jesus Christ by faith today. There will not be points awarded for those that try to keep their feet in both camps. You know, I applaud you. You tried. You didn't always do it the way you should have, but you got close. And I'm going to make an exception this time. I'll come on in. No one to know. I won't tell anyone. That's not how it happens. The only way to be right before God is to trust in Christ by faith. And what we see here in these few short verses 
is that Jesus knows our hearts better than we do. And then I'll conclude with this this morning. I have no idea which camp you're in. I don't. I don't look out. I, I've not given, been given spiritual eyes. I don't see each of you with a name above you. You know, which side, which camp. I don't have eyes to see in that way. I'm not Jesus. But what I do know is we're told this. Those who are filled with the Spirit will display the fruit of the Spirit. And so if you find yourself this morning wondering, well, which camp am I in? I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll conclude with this. I'm going to give you two camps or two filters. Ask yourself or ask someone close to you, which one of these does my life most resemble? In Galatians 5, the work of the flesh is evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The camp that does not believe this is what their life looks like. This is how they model their life and the fruit of their heart displays these traits. But there is another list. We're told the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Against these things, there's nothing against such things as these. Does your life reflect the Holy Spirit? Does your life grow in love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Or does your life look like the flesh, the ways, the fruit of the world? Jesus says the only ones that he entrusts himself to are those that believe in him. And the only way we can believe in him is through the power of his Holy Spirit. And the only way we can do that is taking him by faith. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, I pray for everyone here that they would have true faith, that they would rest, hope, and trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins. Lord, again, I pray for all of our children that they would rest, hope, trust in you. That even from the youngest of ages that they would find their peace in Jesus Christ. Father, may we heed the warning of this passage that Jesus does not entrust himself to those that have wicked hearts. And may we truly examine ourselves this day, this week, and ask, why do I follow Jesus? And Lord, even those that do not follow you and even those that kind of follow you, would you bring them to a state of belief? Would you bring them out of those camps and into the camp that says, I trust Jesus as my Lord, as my Savior, as my Creator, and as my friend. Father, we pray this in and through the power of Jesus Christ. Amen.